Here's what people say about the book of Judges. It's so earthy, so puzzling and so primitive and so violent and in a word so strange that one can scarcely stomach it. So there we go. That's exciting, isn't it? Here's what someone else said. It's a dismal story of despicable people doing despicable things. So that makes you want to read it, I'm sure. Well, what about this one? It's colourful and dramatic characters, including a reluctant farmer, a left-handed assassin, and a sex-addicted strongman are all flawed heroes of questionable character. And yet God still uses them. So there's some encouragement there for us as well. Now, the book of Judges picks up where the book of Joshua ends. And we did Joshua, I think, just before Christmas. Joshua is the story of how God fights for his people to clear out the land so that they can enter in and he can fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham to some degree. And at the end of the book of Joshua, we see God's people in God's place, living under God's blessing and under God's rule. And it's not really been like that since the very earliest days of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And so at the end of Joshua, you kind of get this feeling like, I wonder if it's going to be a, 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 the end of the fairy tale. It's kind of like, oh, finally, a happily ever after. But then you get to Judges. And so if Joshua is like a sort of crystal clear, uh, flowing, kind of picturesque river at the end, well, the, the book of Judges is like a, a brown, sluggish, muddy, kind of uh, polluted river. And it covers the 300-year period, 300 period between the death of Joshua and when Saul ascends the throne, which was in about 1050 BC. So it's about 300 years from the middle of the 14th century to the middle of uh, well, about 1050. Now, when we say judges in our context and in our world, we generally, perhaps you think of uh, a sort of a gown-wearing, wig-wearing, kind of austere lady or gentleman who presides over the law courts. But when we read judges in the book of Judges and in the Bible, what we should think about is warlord or clan chief. These are 12 individuals from different tribes of Israel, all working in different geographical regions of the country to um, deliver various tribes in different parts of the nation from various oppressors and enemies that rise up against them. And the book of Judges is split into three sections. It's split into, uh, the first section is chapters 1 and 2, which really function as a, an introduction. And then the meat of the book is in chapters 3 to 16, where we get these individual, uh, these 12 individual judges' stories. And then the third section is chapters 17 to 21, where the narrator recounts the disastrous moral and um, spiritual decline of God's people. And the, the whole book climaxes, unfortunately, with the very sad words of verse 25 in chapter 21, where it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, how are we going to tackle this in, in one sort of 20-minute sermon? Well, you know how when you go to visit a, like a museum or a castle or a, an outstanding natural place of beauty, there's usually like a visitor's centre somewhere. We, Claire and I did this a few years ago. We went to Giant's Causeway on the north coast of, of Northern Ireland and you go into the visitor's centre 
and someone likes that, obviously. Uh, and you go into the visitor center, and then there's usually like a sort of an introductory video that you can watch that gives you the background and the key dates and the key events so that you can make the most of what you see. And at Giant's Causeway, they tell you about the geography and the, how the columns are formed, and they give you this mythical story about giants between Northern Ireland and Scotland fighting. Is that, is that right? Something like that. It was a few years ago. And then you, you wander around and you see, and then you go down onto the causeway and you just, it's marvelous, it's wonderful. Well, in God's providence, he's given us a video in the visitor center in chapter two, verses six to 23. So we're gonna camp there this morning because what we'll find in this sort of summary section and introduction is that the narrator sets the, the tone for the whole book and the three sections that we've seen the introduction, the main chunk of the judge's story, and then this final kind of uh, descent into anarchy, they are all reflected in the summary sections. So, and we're going to see, so we're going to see three points this morning. We're going to read the, this summary section as we go, rather than all up front. So the first thing that we're going to see that the narrator wants us to see is the roots of Israel's apostasy. The roots of Israel's apostasy. These are chapters 1 and 2, but they're reflected in verses 10 and 11 of Joshua chapter 2. So let's read together. We'll, we'll begin in verse 6, but we'll read through to the end of, um, of verse 10, and then we'll see the roots of Israel's apostasy. And when I say apostasy, that's just a post-Bible word that means uh, rebellion or revolt or um, departure or defection. So... Uh, it kind of just means wandering away from God. So let's read from verse 6 of chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. All the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So, Israel has settled into the land that God had promised. They were comfortable in the land. They had driven out some of their enemies, but they had failed to fulfill the charge that God had given to Joshua and he had passed on to their, the whole nation that was to drive out and eliminate all of the inhabitants of the land. Uh, and so, unfortunately, through the people's disobedience, they had allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land. Uh, and, and what we see is that has a, a detrimental effect on the people of God. And in verse 10, we get this description of the sad and heartbreaking rebellion of the people of God in, in sort of two stages. So first of all, after Joshua and all of his sort of generation die out, there arises a generation that did not know God. 
And they did not know the things that God had done for them. Now, I don't think that that's that they had no knowledge of the Passover or the Exodus or crossing of the Red Sea. They probably knew those things. But the language, I think, is trying to convey they didn't know God personally. They didn't know him relationally. They, they didn't revere him or rejoice over what he had done for them. We might say it like this, that they, God wasn't central to their lives and he wasn't precious to them. And so as a result of that kind of hard-heartedness towards God, they turn their backs on God in verse 11, and they begin to do evil in the sight of God. Now we think, ooh, what does it mean by they were doing evil? Well, the narrator tells us that actually the evil is that they worship false gods, that they worshipped the Baals. Now, we could spend ages analysing and dissecting and diagnosing exactly what the problem was, but the root is simply this. The people of Israel had forgotten God. They had forgotten God and they'd forgotten his gracious salvation. They no longer honoured God and so their hearts became hard-hearted. Their spiritual amnesia, if you like, had caused a spiritual apostasy. They forgot God and they walked away from him. It's like that hymn, uh, Prone to Wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That was Israel's experience. And Judges is going to teach us a really important lesson that we'll see a little bit later on. That apart from actively and continually seeking God and pursuing him and his word and his ways, spiritual decline is unfortunately inevitable. That we don't drift towards God, we only ever drift away from God unless we are intentionally pursuing him and so God wanted the Israelites to conquer the land of of Canaan he wanted them to drive out the people to clear out the land so that they could live in peace and harmony as his people under his blessing but the people disobeyed God and they learned to live with the idols and the nations that remained within their borders and so what we see is we have this picture of Israel neither wholeheartedly worshipping God but neither are they wholeheartedly rejecting him they're sort of caught in this sort of compromise and complacency And Judges warns us that when it comes to following and worshipping God, half-hearted compromise only ever leads to disastrous downfall. And that leads us to the second section of the book, where we see the downward spiral of Israel's apostasy. The downward spiral of Israel's apostasy. This is chapters 3 to 16, but it's reflected in our summary section in verses 12 to 19. So let's continue to read along. And they, that's the people of Israel, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress but then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods, and they bowed down to them, and they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of all of their enemies the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, or he was moved by compassion, by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the rebellion, summarised in verses 10 and 11, now descends into full-blown abandoning of God in verses 12 to 19, uh, as Israel gives themselves to foreign false gods of the surrounding nations. And, and verses 12 to 19 highlight this recurring theme that we'll discover all the way through Judges. It's kind of called the, the judge's cycle. And there's between four and seven steps, depending on who you read. I've gone for seven steps, and it kind of works like this. Number one, we see this in verses 12 and 13. The people rebel against God. Then step two, verse 14, God's anger is provoked. He's angry at the sin and the apostasy of his people. And so step number three, which we see again in verse 14, God ordains Israel's enemies to rise up and to plunder them and to oppress them and to enslave them. And then step number four, Israel is in great distress and so they cry out to God. It's, it's a kind of a, a repentance that they cry out. Uh, verse 18 calls it groaning. So you can imagine, oh Lord, please, no more of this, deliver us. And so God, in, in step five, raises up a judge to deliver his people from the, an, the hands of the enemies. We see that in verse 16. Then step number six, through the judge, God returns the land and the nation of Israel to relative peace. But the final step is that when the judge dies, the peace is not long lasting. And the nation of Israel quickly returned to their evil ways. But the twist in the tale that we see in verse 19 is that they become more evil and more corrupt and more wicked and further away from God as the spiral and the cycle continues down and down and down. One judge after another after another through all of 12. And you'll see that in the judge's story. So if you go to... We, we, we haven't got time to read it, but if you go to Judges chapter 3 and Othniel, the first judge, he is a model example of what a judge should be. He is a man who is raised up by God. We're told he's invested with the Spirit of God. We're told that he leads Israel in successful warfare against his enemies, just as Joshua did. But then fast forward a few years to Judges chapters 6 to 9 and you get Gideon. And he is very reluctant and very slow to respond to God's call to deliver Israel. And in fact, he's this reluctant farmer. He demands that God do some miracles for him to try and convince him that God is with him. And even then, when God does all the miracles that, that Gideon asked for, he, he's cowardly and he's skeptical. He's not courageous. But he eventually delivers the Israelites from the hands of the Midianites, but then Gideon, <coughs> Gideon himself, the judge, the very one that God raised up, he succumbs to false worship. He succumbs to idol worship. And he leads the entire nation of Israel astray. And then his family that follows on after him, his son becomes an oppressor and a murderer in Israel. 
So there's this downward spiral. Then fast forward another kind of few decades and you get to Judges 13 to 16 and you get to Samson, who is a shadow of what a godly judge should be. He's set apart from birth for the Lord. He's a Nazarite, but he violates God's covenant in almost every, every imaginable way possible through his selfish kind of sinful self-indulgence and his inability to curb or to restrain his kind of sexual appetite. And he leads God's people astray. And so as the chapters 3 to 16 progress, Israel just becomes more and more entrenched in their hard-heartedness. The oppression that they feel from their enemies gets heavier and heavier. Their repentance gets less and less heartfelt. And the character and the effectiveness of the judges becomes less and less effective and more and more flawed. But incredibly, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. And that's the third thing that the narrator wants us to see. So we've seen the roots of Israel's apostasy. We've seen the downward spiral of Israel's apostasy. But thirdly, he wants us to see the depths of Israel's apostasy. And these are chapters 17 to 21, but they're reflected in verses 20 to 23. So let's read that together now. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And God said, well, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and they have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations and not drive, did not drive them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. So verse 20 tells us that Israel had transgressed God's covenant. They disobeyed God. They had tragically failed to learn the lessons and they had failed the test that God had set for them. And the final chapters of the book of Judges, 17 to 21, are this sordid tale of Israel sinking to new and shocking lows of cowardice and unfaithfulness and apostasy and idolatry. Uh, and there's outrageous immorality that you can read about, and, and it descends into civil war where the tribes ended up fighting against one another. And what you'll see in verses 20, 17 to 21 is that there is no repentance in that section. There's no calling out to God. They just continue to sink unabated lower and lower and lower. But what you find repeated in that section is this phrase. There was no king in Israel. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the story of Judges sort of just trails off into a sad state of affairs. And it's anything but hopeful. But what the narrator is trying to do in those chapters is he's laying the groundwork for the inevitable next step that God has planned for Israel. And that's the establishment of the king. There's no king in Israel and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So, oh, okay, a king will solve all the solutions and the problems, right? And he leaves us with this kind of tantalizing question that's phrased like this. Will a monarchy bring an end to the anarchy? Now, lest we get too proud or self-righteous, the New Testament reminds us in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are very similar to the people of Israel that we're sinners 
And in verse uh, in First Corinthians chapter ten, Paul also reminds us that the Old Testament history was written for our instruction, so that we might not make the same mistakes that the people, the Old Testament people of God, did. And so Judges really is the story of all of God's people in every age, including our own and including you and me. We are, if we're honest with ourselves, we're a similar mix of um, frail obedience. We're a mixture of ignorance, tangled and flawed motives, sinful desires, compromising complacency. You know, but for the grace of God, we're probably only a few steps away from apostasy ourselves. And so Judges has some lessons for us to learn. How, how is Judges, reading Judges, going to help us to fight and be faithful? Well, just three quick things. Firstly, Judges presents us with a warning. In the roots of Israel's apostasy, we saw that they were forgetting God and his word and his ways, and they were just doing what was right in their own eyes. They just came up with it themselves. What they felt, they did. What felt good to them, they did. But the, the narrator wants us to see that only and ever always results in serious consequences. You see, Israel's spiritual life was, was more complex than just one day they woke up and they said, oh, do you know what, I'm going to stop worshipping God and I'm going to start worshipping idols. No, what they did is that they, they saw the things that were going on around them and they were tempted. They, they saw the worship that the other nations were doing and they thought, oh, I quite like a bit of that. And that seems to make sense and that looks good and they seem to be prospering. And so maybe if I do what they do, that'll happen to me. And so they wanted a kind of a pick and mix religion. They took a bit from here and a bit from there and a bit from over there and they threw it all together. And they wanted to be sovereign and in control of their own religion. And they probably thought that God could just be one of many gods that they worshipped. Perhaps he might have even been the first among equals. But the problem was they didn't yield absolute lordship to, Christ, to, to God over every area of their lives. And it led to disastrous consequences. And there's a warning for us because we live in the midst of many false gods today. And I'm not just talking about other religions, formal religions, but we live in a world where the lure and the temptations and the seductions of this world and its siren calls to us. Uh, they call, it calls us to abandon God and come to worship at the idols of BMW and, and Durex and Apple and MasterCard and your career and your achievements and your convenience and your comforts or your particular ideology or the cause that you want to stand up for. And these temptations are really strong. Some of them are even really good. But when they become God things, they threaten to pull us away from the true God, just as Israel was. And they want us to live with little or no regard for God and his ways, but instead to do what is right in our own eyes. And it's not the paganism or the pluralism of society. It's not the false gods and the multitude of gods that, that are around in our society that will turn us into atheists. Although that might be the case if you listen to the loud deconstructionist voices out there but what will happen to us if we're not careful is that we'll become Christians who allow the idols of our hearts and the idols of our culture to coexist alongside God and we think we can have a pick and mix religion I'll do this and a bit of that and a bit of this and I'll be okay and judges warns us no 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 that only ever leads to disastrous consequences we need to always Always submit ourselves to the authority and the lordship of God in every area of our lives. For apart from active and continual pursuit of God and his word and his ways, Judges tells us that spiritual decline, unfortunately, is inevitable. 
Now, how do you know whether you're on the track of the, uh, of the Israelites? Well, Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, just gives two questions that we should honestly ask ourselves to assess our lives as we, as we look at each area. So as you consider your family and your career and your possessions and your ambition and your time and your money and, and whatever else it is, so on and so on. He says this, ask yourself two questions. And then if you, depending on your answer, you'll know whether you're giving in to false idol worship. First question is this, am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? So am I willing to listen to him and submit to him about this area of my life? And then the second question, am I willing to accept whatever God sends into this area of my life? So am I willing to do whatever God says? And I'm willing to accept whatever God says. And, and Tim Keller just goes on to say, if you answer no to either of those questions, then you know you've, you've abandoned God to some degree and you've, you've turned to a false God. Because if you're not willing to do what God says, then you're not submitted wholeheartedly to his authority. And that's going to lead to spiritual decline. And if you're not prepared to receive and accept what God sends and you're not submitted to his sovereign lordship and control over your life, and that will lead to spiritual decline. So he wants us to heed the warning and to repent and to give ourselves to the authority, submit ourselves to the authority and lordship of God in our lives. Now, secondly and quickly, because we're running out of time, Judges not only provides us with a warning, but it provides us with hope. It provides us with hope. It paints a really bad picture of human sin, but the realism that's contained tells us something important that we need to know about God. That even when his people are unfaithful, even when we are sinners, God remains faithful. You see, Israel continually walked away from God in this downward spiral into more and more wickedness and more and more sin. And yet God faithfully, graciously, compassionately, mercifully always delivers his people. And it wasn't due to their merits or it wasn't because of their repentance. It was because of his compassion, which the narrator makes clear in verses 16 to 18. It was because of his promises to Abraham and Judges is the story of God's long-suffering mercy towards rebellious people like us. For as bad as the Old Testament people of God were, they were never beyond the reach of his grace. And so there's comfort here for us as well. As bad as you or I might be, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. There is hope in Judges, and that's because of the final thing that we see. Judges points us to a true and better judge. God graciously raised up judges and to deliver his people from their oppressors. But these men and, and women, Deborah as well, chapters 4 and 5, although they're, they're even, some of them are commended in, the, in, in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, they, they all had major flaws. They all had major faults. They were all sinners. And so we're reminded as we read it, yes, God raised them up, but they were sinners. They were not in and of themselves enough to save God's people from their enemies. Now, they were a means of God's grace to the people to defeat this enemy over here or to push back this oppressor over there at various points in history. These judges could save some of God's people some of the time from some of their enemies. But they were not successful in delivering Israel. They didn't have the power to deliver Israel from their greatest need. 
which was their sinfulness in front of a holy God. And so Judges points us to, a need, to our need, to all men and, women, men and women's need for a saviour. A saviour who must be more than just a human judge, more than just a human prophet, more than just a human priest, more than just a human king. We need a saviour who is able to deal not only with merely human and external enemies that come against us from the outside, but also to deal with our enemy on the inside of sin that brings the wrath of God towards us. And we need a saviour who is able to save his people to the utmost, to bring a total and complete and full and lasting eternal salvation from all of our enemies. Judges is going to remind us that we need a champion to fight on our behalf. One who is raised up by God, one who is invested with the Spirit of God in full measure, one who is able to deliver us and to secure for us the inheritance that God has promised to us, one who is able to lead God's people in righteousness and peace and joy, one who is able to perfect our faith. And that which the ancient Israelites desperately needed, that which you and I have needed, God thankfully has provided in Christ. And so though his name is not listed in the pages of Judges, we read it rightly. It will point us to him. Let's pray.